Today on Sagittarian Matters, we talk about writing, weirdness, home alone, banana-flavored vegan food reviews, and more with Megan Milks, Don Riddle, Kaya Wilson, and Marissa Paternoster. Stay tuned. Hello from the Sagittarian Matters Social Distancing Studios in Tahunga, California. Listeners, today on the show, I am thrilled to share an interview with you that I did with Megan Milks, author of Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body. This was one of my favorite books from last year. It was my favorite book that I read last year. Um, But before then, we have an unsolicited banana-flavored vegan food review roundup with Don Riddle and a review and revisitation of Home Alone 1 and 2 with spouse to the show, Kaya Wilson. I hope you enjoy today's episode. But first, before I let you into it, I want to tell you this. If you have ever wanted to take a graphic memoir workshop with me, I wanted to let you know that I have one right now. Well, it's beginning in April. You can run, don't walk, to my website, NicoleJGeorges.com, to get more information and sign up. If you have any questions, you can email me through my website. It's a five-week workshop. We might extend to six weeks if we all really like each other and want to learn for an extra week. And we'll talk about all sorts of things. We'll do writing exercises, drawing exercises. I'll show you some of my favorite comics, some of my favorite tips. We'll talk comics basics. You can be someone who is wonderful at drawing, or you could be somebody who is so shy about drawing and is very unfamiliar. It's okay. Everybody is welcome in this workshop, and you can find out more at NicoleJGeorges.com. I do not know when I will be teaching it again. I do not have another one on the books, so if you're interested, go over there. Okay, now that I've told you that, on with the show. Dawn Riddle is a multidisciplinary artist from Portland, Oregon. She's a brilliant painter, weaver, photographer, musician, playwright, videographer, and unsolicited vegan food review correspondent. Here are two reviews from Dawn's recent travels to the East Coast. She went to Philadelphia, and then she went on the road with the band Screaming Females, including friend to the show Marissa Paternoster, who you will hear in the background here. Now please enjoy these two banana-flavored vegan food reviews. Welcome to another Philadelphia edition of Unsolicited Vegan Food Reviews. I'm sitting in Megan and Chris's church, surrounded by dogs. They aren't religious people. It's, they bought a church. They live in it. Clarification. Okay, so I noticed at Grocery Outlet a product called Muwala, plant-based banana milk. And I really wanted to buy it to try it with Megan because when I lived with Megan many, many years ago... She would have big smoothies of, I think, just bananas and water uh, every morning. So we're going to talk about this now. 
It is. Got water, bananas, sunflower seeds, and um, cinnamon. And that's it. It's really... It's really nice uh, list of ingredients. The taste is, it's like a watery smoothie, I would say. So it would be good to add to a smoothie. I also think it would be good with a kind of bland cereal. Um, they have a little story on the back. This is that Muala is a koala with cow design. And he seems to make this product in a secret factory. And he leaves the bottles at your favorite grocery store, hides and waits for you to pick them up, and sometimes follows you home. So slightly sinister. But honestly, it says to put it in coffee. Oh, gosh, I spilled some. I don't think I would do that, but I think I would use it for cereal. I would use it for baking. And I think it was $1.99 at Grocery Outlet, who sponsors this segment of Sagittarian Matters, I'm fairly sure, except for they haven't really come through with any deals yet okay i love you bye hello sagittarian matters this is don riddle marita marissa pastor <laughs> marissa paternoster and michael vate i'm not here no you gotta start over well i actually kind of like how it's gone so far <laughs> we're gonna eat a thing we bought at a gas station in alabama called banana planks uncle al's banana planks it is um vegan um, it also comes with a warning that it may possibly be produced with genetic engineering. So what we have in here, it was a dollar, or it was like a dollar nineteen. What we have in here is what looks like a scalloped graham cracker shaped cookie, dripping with. I mean, it's not. It's like dry, but at one point it was dripping with yellow ooze, which I'm assuming is the banana. And it's a plank, I think, just because it's very flat. And as a frequent planker, I respect it. She's crunching it right now. I think it's pretty good. Oh, she likes it. I probably, I bought the banana, banana plank flavor due to, I think, it having like a better way of rolling when speaking it. They also had like original recipe and lemon. So next time I'd probably try original. This tastes like a pretty good graham cracker with a hint of banana runts on top. Marissa's refused to eat it, so she's only yeah. tangentially uh, appearing on this review. Uh, I wish you all the finest banana flavors of the day. I love you. Goodbye. Megan Milks is the author of the books Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body and Slug and Other Stories, a finalist for the 2022 Lambda Literary Award. They are also the author of Tori Amos' Bootleg Web Ring, and they co-edited We Are the Babysitter's Club, an anthology. You can sign up for Megan's writing workshop that we talk about in this episode. The writing workshop is called What Is This Thing Called Weird? It starts January 24th, so make haste. And you can go to theshipmentagency.com to get more information. Megan joined me via Zoom to talk about writing, the Babysitter's Club, weirdness, queerness. We gave advice on publishing and even on having children. Plus, and I can't tell if this is horrifying or not, I read a passage from Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body to Megan Milks, the author, 
because I loved the passage so much. It was my favorite book that I read in 2022. Without further ado, please enjoy my talk with Megan Milks. Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body. How would you describe this book? Or how have you been describing this book? I've been describing it as a coming-of-age novel that... A coming-of-age novel in which the genres and structures keep shifting um, kind of to in as a way to like come of age with the protagonist so the protagonist is like moving through these various genres which I think of as like you know popular genres of the young girl mostly until we get to the end um and uh and the protagonist is sort of taking um what she needs from them and sort of like uh taking what she needs and like um recognizing their limits and then like moving into the next um genre and so some of the genres are um uh the babysitter's club kind of homage um which is also mixed with um a little bit of nancy drew and um and a little bit of goosebumps because there is paranormal weird stuff that goes on in the mini mysteries um And then, um, so Margaret starts off, uh, well, we first meet Margaret in high school, um, uh, and that club, Girls Can Solve Anything, has disbanded, and Margaret is really just distraught, can't get over it. Like, it's been several years, still just feels like her identity is, like, uh, you know, her identity is, um, is so affected by the, um, by no longer being a club leader. So what does she do? Um, and so that first genre, the high school genre, is um, uh, I think of it as like the problem novel genre, like the young adult problem novel. Um, and the problem um, for Margaret is disordered eating um, because that's sort of what she has turned to to cope with this loss. Um, and there is other stuff going on too. But um, yeah, and then... Um, the other genres are like Chronicles of Anorexia, Memoirs of Eating Disorders, Girl Interrupted, which is not about disordered eating um, uh, explicitly, but like definitely has that kind of, it's like the er memoir of um, the mad girl, um, mentally ill um, uh, young woman. Um, and uh Right, and then um, there's, like, this mutant body world. I don't really know what genre that is. What genre is that? (laughs) It's, like, um, well, I was thinking about it as, like, queer body horror. Um, And it's a way to, like, so it's, like, a way to reprise the Girls Can Solve Anything, excuse me, um, mysteries, but in this new register where there's, like, not, it's not a solvable mystery. It's, like... It's like a, um, a kind of uh, the characters have to sort of sit with their discomfort and their like um, not knowing, um, uh, especially when it comes to like 
the body and bodily processes and their relationships to their bodies. Um, and then the final genre is um, a kind of like uh, post-confessional feminist um, auto theory. It's like auto-fictional auto theory. I don't know. I just sound pretentious when I say that, but um, it's like riffing off of uh, Chris Cross's I Love Dick and um, and some other genre, uh, some other uh, books in that sort of realm. It, the whole thing is just fantastic. I just, um, I want to know how did you start writing like that? Like, how did you start, like, how did you go from being like a, a person, probably a young, your whole life being like, I'm, I'm writing. Here I'm writing, I'm writing. And then how did you, like, what were the, what were the, I don't know. How did you start writing in a way where you were like, I'm going to genre blend. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Uh, you know, like the first, um, the first, the first uh, unfinished novel um, that I began was, you know, when I was 10 years old or so. And um, it was The Mystery of the Missing Silverware. Um, and uh, I don't know where the silverware was, but that was like the first, you know, I was trying to write like a kind of, um, uh, a, yeah, kind of juvenile fiction um, mystery. Anyway, like these uh, adolescent genres have been just so um, important and formative for me as a writer. Um, and I think um, when I was uh, pursuing writing in college and then later in um, uh, grad school, I went to Temple. Um, I think I just like, I was in some ways just really resisting kind of like the dominant modes of like literary fiction that we were being asked to kind of absorb and um, and mimic. And I just found myself t returning to these adolescent genres and thinking about ways to um, work with them um, uh, in experimental ways. Um, yeah, and then, I don't know, I think um, a friend of mine introduced me to Kathy Acker's Blood and Guts in High School, and um, it just gave me, like, permission to really go wild. There were versions of the novel that were much wilder and more experimental, um, that were kind of just, like, super anarchic and very, like... Um, in, in some ways very derivative of Kathy, Kathy Acker's um, work. Um, and actually Kathy Acker used to be a character in, in the book, um, in, in very early versions. Um, I think she shows up in a motorcycle and, and, um, and, uh, runs over Margaret. <laughs> Deleted scene. Um, and, uh, and then there were versions that were more conventional and really trying to be, like, at one point I was just sort of like, I'm going to write a young adult novel. I'm going to write something that will sell. Um, and uh, I'm glad I thought better of that. But um, but yeah, you know, it's gone all different ways. Can I tell you my one of my favorite parts? Not a, a tiny part. Sure. That I was like, I can't believe you just did that. Okay, so the teenagers realize that their teacher whose house they've broken into 
has undergone a transformation. And their teacher has transformed into like a, a moth. Is that true? Yeah, like a yeah, mutant moth, butterfly a mutant moth. person. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm just going to read this tiny part, if that's okay with you. Sure. Okay. So, you know, they, this is their science teacher. Um, sorry, I'm just going to read the whole book to you. I'm like, <laughs> where to start? I don't know. I'm really just getting to this one part where they, the teacher flicks their tongue. But okay. Why do you want a new body, Mrs. Stillwater? I demanded. Well, Margaret, she slumped on her stool and looked me over critically. Wouldn't you? I reddened. I suspected she was calling me fat. Answer the question. Antenna nubs wiggled on her forehead. Here's a better question. What's wrong with using science to get one? What's wrong with it? I echoed. You're becoming a bug. Scientific progress succeeds through trial and error. Have I taught you nothing? This isn't science. It's fantasy. Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh. She clicked softly and shook her head. Or uh -uh uh-uh-uh. You're smarter than this. She sloped her thick body toward me, expressing a smell like decaying lettuce. I stepped back and bumped into Gretchen, who steadied me with two hands. We all use technology to alter our bodies, Margaret. Mrs. Stillwater seemed to have slipped back into teacher mode. Why should bioengineered metamorphosis be any different? My mind raced. Because you're a thief, you're a pathological criminal, and you need to be put behind bars. Margaret, Gretchen breathed in my ear. Don't you think you're being a bit harsh? I glanced at her mystified. How could she defend Mrs. Stillwater? She needs help, not punishment. I didn't understand. She's a criminal, Gretchen. Mrs. Stillwater reared up before us. And a mastermind, a criminal criminal mastermind. (laughs) Take that. She flicked her proboscis at me. Spittle flew from the wet whip. I jumped back, narrowly avoiding the slap. And that! She wound it back up and flicked again. I fell against Gretchen and we tumbled to the floor. <laughs> the part where you have her... Did I... Where you have her going, take that! And that! That part... <laughs> was... I just was reading and I was like, I can't believe somebody just got to write that. It, made, it just was such... <laughs> <laughs> and just flip just flipping it at this at the students and whipping them in the face <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad you i'm glad you enjoyed that yes yes um I, yeah I, research you know like i the more i learned about butterflies the more i was like yes yes use this <laughs> you know <laughs> butterflies and moths um was she she was turning into a butterfly I couldn't remember if it was a butterfly or moth. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, okay. So all that is to say, I saw that you were teaching a class on weirdness, Mm -hmm. queerness and weirdness in writing. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you, I don't even know how to begin the question of how to, what, what do you think of as, as weirdness and what is its attachment to queerness? Yeah, so this class, um, which I'm teaching through the workroom, it's my first time teaching for them, um, and it's it's a short course. Um, and I have to say, before um, I actually respond to your question, what's so weird is that in the class is Julia Sweeney of It's Pat. Pat? Yes. Pat's in your class? Are you allowed she's to say that Pat's my, in your class? She's taking my class. <laughs> she's great oh yeah <laughs> I bet she's a really good student she is yeah 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 she's really she's really shown up 
yeah, and, um, yeah, it's been really fun getting to know her in this way. Uh, I didn't have any previous, you know, yeah, I, I really, I'm still unclear about how she, like, found her way into this class, but it's, yeah, it's been really fun and, and very interesting. Um, yeah, so, um, but to your question, so, um, okay, so I'm really using this class as a way to, um, explore these topics myself, you know, the class is titled, what is this thing called weird? And for me, like, this is, you know, it's a, it's a real question. It's an open question. Um, and it's related to this, um, ongoing conversation I've been having with Amber Dawn. Um, do you know, uh, her work, amazing writer of, um, queer weird stuff. Um, and, um, so we are working on an AWP panel on the topic of the new queer weird. Um, and so I've been trying to, you know, I've been basically using this class as a way to like generate ideas and, um, thinking around, around this, um, kind of like genre that we're trying to, um, uh, name and describe. Um, but yeah, there's, so, um, so yeah, there's been a lot of writing about the weird as like a literary thing. Um, Anne and Jeff Vandermeer have published this like massive anthology of, of weird, um, fiction. And then in the past like decade, maybe decade and a half, um, uh, there's, or maybe two decades, I don't know, but, um, there's been more discourse around, like, what's been, what's become known as the new weird, um, uh, that's really coming out of, like, speculative fiction, fantasy, um, usually with, like, a little bit of horror mixed in. Um, but within that conversation, there's been very little attention paid to, queerness and the role of queerness and kind of like the relationship between um, weird fiction and queer fiction, queer literature. So Amber, Don and I are, are, have been talking about like, you know, what is that relationship? And, um, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, I am, yeah, I don't know yet. I'm still, yeah, I'm still thinking about it. I know she's still thinking about it. Our panel, we're all thinking about it. Um, so probably we'll be writing about it too. Are all queer people weird? (laughs) I hope so. I hope so too. (laughs) I mean, I wonder like, how do you approach this with your students? Is it just a, a level of giving them permission to let literally anything happen? Or is it more like, I don't know. How do you, how do you lead someone to the queer, to the weird or queer water? And then you just, you show them a lot of examples and then you're like, all right, (laughs) get freaky. I mean, that's basically what what I've been doing, but I have been, um, I have been wondering if that's the best approach. Um, I mean, yeah, I think, um, I don't know, like, yeah, I kind of um, have been developing exercises based on the examples that we've been using. And some of them are kind of like more um, like uh, um, 
sort of like language machine kind of exercises, like taking language from these weird stories and using them to like um, uh, write sentences and just sort of like let the language um, build the story. Um, and then others are sort of like, um, uh, oh, write a, tell the story of a character who's partially, who's like partially edible, um, which is, um, drawn from Vicky Now's, um, great story, um, Minky Mufa. Um, and yeah, like all sorts of different exercises. Um, but I mean, I've just been... I definitely think of weirdness as just like, uh, or I guess like weird writing, um, as writing that's just like outside of conventions or like defies conventions or, um, or yeah, just like does surprising, unusual things. Um, whether it is through the supernatural or paranormal, which is sort of like the traditional kind of definition of the weird um or through like weird logic which can be like absurdist I mean yeah some of what we've been finding out is um at least based on the examples that I've decided you know are examples of weird uh queer fiction um is that a lot of queer fiction is very funny a a lot of weird queer fiction is very funny um and not really suffused with dread um in the way that uh, some of these like older examples of weird fiction are. I'm going to go write a story about someone who's partially edible. <laughs> I'll let you know how it goes. Okay, can't wait to read. Something I really like about your stories is how flawed your characters are. Mm. And I just, I mean, I'm coming to you from, it's like everything, everything you do is so, I'm like, wow, because you know I work in autobiography in a lot of just getting down like the actual details and the actual emotion of the experience. And so then reading fiction that is just like very bright and lively and has so many options and opportunities. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. There's so many things you're doing at once. Um, But I wanna talk about flawed characters and I wanna talk about if, do your characters come to you this way or do you have to kind of work to add some flaws for them to work with? Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Or like if they're, if they're, if any of them are partially based off of you, Mm -hmm. like at what point do you decide like, okay, I'm going to reveal this thing. I'm going to include this thing in this character. I think that I actually struggle with this more in nonfiction because I've been uh, writing more nonfiction recently and I've had to really push myself to be vulnerable, vulnerable in ways that I I don't really have to challenge myself to do in writing fiction because fiction for me is in some ways like a way to, it's like a processing um, uh, tool really. And so, yeah, I think with fiction, um, I'm really coming to the page, like trying to work through something that's like very, um, like taking up a lot of uh, emotional space. Um, often it's like interpersonal s- dynamics, things like that. And, um, uh, or other, um, gender questions, things like that. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I really s- have tended to see fiction as like a very 
kind of safe, free space for doing that kind of work. Um, uh, because it's like, it, it, you know, until I, until I show it to someone, it's like totally private. And, um, and I tend to spend a lot of time revising. Um, yeah, I'm a very slow writer, so um, I tend to read and reread and fiddle and fiddle. And a lot of my revisions are very, um, uh, like, a lot of my revisions are very transformative revisions. So when I get to that stage is usually where, like, I create distance, you know, between myself and the characters. And sometimes, like, the characters um, kind of... Uh, Oh, I don't know. I'm sort of losing my train of thought, but, um, but yeah, I think I go to fiction to be vulnerable, I suppose. And nonfiction, I feel like I, I am more guarded because it, it, it is sort of more explicitly vulnerable. And I'm, you know, I'm like asking people to, uh, relate to me and to see my point of view. Whereas with fiction, it's very much like, here are characters, like, identify with who you want and feel however you want to feel about them. Um, but nonfiction is scary, and I would love to... <laughs> I would love to um, hear whatever strategies you've come up with for, like, challenging yourself to, to go there. God, I don't know if it's just disassociation or what. Because I've, I've had this talk with Michelle T. before, too, for, like, I can't believe you said that thing that's so personal <laughs> and you're like oh, I did oh hmm <laughs> I mean I don't I just it's just better for the story mm-hmm. it's the thing mm-hmm. I mean I know when I pitched calling Dr. Laura I tried to make a proposal version where it was fiction and my literary agent was like what are you doing the most interesting part of this is that it really happened like <laughs> no you're not allowed to write it as fiction this isn't a fiction like no 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 and I was like oh god really <laughs> you know because I like have a family and a self and whatever and I just I don't know and then I, but then I just had a moment where I was like this is it baby I was like this is your big break you get a big publisher you gotta take it to the wall and so I literally and I make students do this to a different degree but I literally just like tried to think of the most shameful thing I could like something that just literally like that actually felt like that shame was still lodged and very present and alive and then I wrote about that and I just and I even as I was writing it I was still blushing and I still felt exactly the same as I felt when I was like a kid and then I showed it to my editor because again it was like you were saying when you're you know before you revise like it's up until it wasn't real it was like, okay, I wrote this story. It's embarrassing, but I'm going to show it to this paid professional editor who's going to tell me it doesn't belong in the book. And then the editor was like, oh, no, this is great. Yeah, leave that in the book. And I kept actually trying to, like, take it out at different parts with different, because I had, like, a lot of different editors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, no, no, this adds to the story. Wow. Wow. And then there's just the value in that and then publishing it and having people... I mean, you know, and you know, I did like, I did zines for a long time. So like mm-hmm. diary comics, mm-hmm. where I had different levels of disclosure about things. And just the things that were hard for me to write ended up being the things that people gravitated towards and were like, oh, I really liked this part. Thank you for this part. Yeah. And so then I just kept doing it. 
Mm-hmm. I was like, you liked it? I'm going to do it again. <laughs> Look, I could do it again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, I, are you ready to, to answer advice questions? Sure. I have a really quick question for you, which is, I was reading your essay in the Babysitter's Club book. Mm-hmm. We are the Babysitter's Club. And I'm going to have your co-editor on here so we can talk just about the BSC. Yes. But I wondered if you could talk at all about queerness as immaturity or immaturity's relation to queerness. It's almost mm. like queer failure, kind of. Oh, but yeah. like the, t- the teen version. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, right. Like, uh, this is what we always get saddled with. Um uh, as, as queers, there's this association of queerness with immaturity. I mean, and it come, I think, uh, I don't know if it originates with Freud, but, you know, Freud's idea of arrested development, you know, like queerness as a form of arrested development. Um, uh, I think, you know, that has been deeply entrenched in in culture. Um, and then, I don't know, I think, uh, I find a lot of pleasure in thinking about um, and sort of just like claiming that and thinking about like, why not be immature because maturity is so like, you know, saddled with all these other kinds of like uh, um, bourgeois expectations, like heteronormative expectations, obviously. And yeah, so if if queerness is maturity, or sorry, if queerness is immaturity, then fuck yeah, let's be immature and just embrace like childishness and playfulness and wonder and, um, you know, um, I don't know what else. Um, But yeah, all all those things that are the opposite of like, uh, the kind of mature adulthood that we're supposed to seek out and uh enjoy and in your essay it was kind of around christy poor christy from the babysitter's club and when everybody else started liking boys christy was really left behind Mm. (laughs) and left by all of her friends i really i really liked claudia i mean you know as you Mm. can imagine i loved the idea of having all the food under your pillow having marshmallows under your pillow and like paper mache earrings you know, having some pretzels for your diabetic friend, yeah. too, which is, like, really thoughtful. For sure. Anyway, Claudia. I am going to say this on the Babysitter's Club podcast, but at oh. some point I was, like, jonesing so hard for the Babysitter's Club that I would read the Little Sister books. Me, too. Even though I hated Karen. <laughs> I hated the illustrations of her, and I just hated her. What did I don't you know hate why. about her? I, did, I don't know that I hated her, but... Um... I was just never satisfied by those books. Wasn't she? She was like rich and blonde and just like kind of a brat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the drawings of her, she just had a really unappealing look to me. And But that, unfortunately, I have intertwined my experience of getting glasses with her experience of getting glasses. And I almost can't remember whose is whose. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, as much as I dislike little sister Karen <laughs> like I remember I actually remember being resentful that she was so pissed that she had to get glasses oh. as a kid I was like just deal with it Karen <laughs> <laughs> she was really upset oh 
Yeah, Karen, yeah, she got upset about a lot of things. I also remember that she never, um, she did not speak slash write with contractions, which really drove me up the wall. Like everything was like, I did not go to school today. You know, not I didn't. This very, yeah, yeah, small thing. Quit putting on airs, Karen. Yeah. And then the only the other thing I that I think about all the time. Oh, so I remember Karen would call somebody a silly Billy Goo Goo or one of the babe kids they babysat. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought it was so stupid, and it lives. It's just like <laughs> <laughs> there's so much information that's not there, and that's there <laughs> with me. Has it ever just like slipped out <laughs> when you didn't want it to? <laughs> <laughs> I think I've never said it out loud before this moment. I've only read it and been like. Fuck you. And then it just was in there. And then like, I'll be by myself walking through the house and like it will pop into my head. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> and then when those snobby neighbors had like a, some kind of St. Bernard dog that was like a mountain dog, whatever it was. <laughs> and then the way they resolved their fight was that someone like dropped pizza on the dog. What? And they were like, he's a pepperoni hound now. Do you remember that? It was like, I don't. Christy was like having it out with the snobs and they had some kind of St. Bernard and somebody was holding a pizza and they're like, get out of my way, bitch. I don't know what they were saying. There was some kind of something happened and some pizza, like some cheese or something, something slid onto the dog and then everyone just had a good laugh and then they became best buds. Okay. Sounds, rings vaguely familiar. I have not read a Babysitter's Club book in probably 20 to 30 (laughs) years. I love that these are your memories. <laughs> so these are my main memories. I love them. Today's episode is brought to you by Laura Perry, Jamie Raven, Jennifer Astion, Shoshana Ruth Wechter, and Joey Soloway. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, in particular, producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $5 million, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. Or, this just in, he's got a Venmo, Hell Books. That's H-E, double hockey sticks, books, on Venmo. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it too. Don't be scared. It's just Ponyo's speaking voice. Dear Sagittarian Matters, how does one know if one wants to become a parent at some point? From Wondering and Waikiki. <laughs> I feel like we're being trolled. <laughs> this person, I think they wrote it before I wrote, hey, you could ask us anything. Even ask us parenting advice. Um, it doesn't feel like being <laughs> trolled, but maybe they're entirely earnest. Okay. Yeah. We should respond as if they are. Dear Wondering and Waikiki. All right. What do you say? Um, I can only speak to the experience of being a pet parent. Um, so I'm going to assume that that is, um, you know, included in their definition of, of parenting. And, um, I can only say that if you're willing to commit to being a forever friend to your child or or pet then I don't know and 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 I I really this I'm already feeling like I want to 
I want to delete my response to this, this question. I like to, I like um, the forever part. It's true. <laughs> you have to be in it forever, forever. Yeah. Yeah. Forever. For, I mean, yeah, you have to sign that. Or I signed it at the SPCA, but, um, yeah, I don't know that I have anything. I'll, um, I mean, I don't, there's a, I really say. like a Cheryl Strayed answer. Somebody wrote to her dear sugar column and was like, what do I do? Have a kid or not have a kid? And she wrote this really lovely answer about like the ghost ships that do not carry us. Like how it, every part of our life, there's like two, there's two versions of what our life could have been. And you'll just never know what that other version was. Oh, wow. And it'll be okay mm-hmm. either way. Mm-hmm. But I want to tell this person when I was in my oh, that's good. early to mid thirties, I was having this like, you know, biological, like maybe you should have a baby thing. And then I went to visit, and some of my queer friends were having babies, and they were like, come on, come on, do it with us, do it with us. Come on, let's all just do, we'll do it together. And I was like, oh, maybe we shall do this together. And then I visited some friends, some straight people that had adult kids, like 18, 19 years old, and they were like, you don't want a baby. Your your art's your baby. They're like, don't do it unless you really want that to be your thing. They're like, your art is your thing. You don't need to have a kid. And it was nice to have that perspective because mm-hmm. my queer friends that were like feeling lonely were like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, do it, do it, do it, do it. Don't leave us alone. And then to have some people that were like, let your art be your baby. Let your dog be your baby. Like, you're, you're, that's fine. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know. Like, what's, what's the thing you actually want? You have to babysit 24 hours a day. Do you want it enough to babysit 24 hours a day? is my question to them. I mean, Ponyo, I have to think about 24 hours a day. And there's days I leave her at home, mm. but I'm not going to jail for yeah. leaving her home alone. If Ponyo was an infant, that's jail time. <laughs> that's CPS. <laughs> this is an excellent, excellent <laughs> oh, advice. Yeah, I'll, I, I'll, co- okay. I'll co-sign This that. is a, another heavy one. Dear Sagittarius Matters, what do you say when someone tells you that they miss you, but you don't miss them? Signed, not Ooh. missing in Nebraska. Oh, wow. Well, I have so many questions about this situation, this dynamic. I guess for me, it would be sort of a, a question of like, what is at stake in being honest or mm. dishonest? Like, if you feel you're giving something up by just giving them what they want, I miss you too. If that feels like, I don't know, like vomit in your mouth, then don't do it. Think of, think of another, like, just like redirect the conversation. Like, Whoa! Yeah. Thinking of you or, <laughs> or <laughs> bye. So someone goes, <laughs> Megan, I miss you. Bye. <laughs> okay, well, good talking. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that was appropriate. I don't know. I get, it really depends on the relationship and what you want out of it. Because, like, if it's your grandma or something, and you're like, I don't, I don't miss my grandma. But, you know, TikTok, she doesn't have that long to live. It's a service. It doesn't take, it's not going to do anything. But if it's like a friend or a loved one or like a date or something and they're like, and you don't miss them, I don't know. It's like on TV when someone says, I love you and the other person says, thank you. 
Mm-hmm. You kind of just have to be able to tolerate what happens next. I co-sign on your advice. Yeah. And then I'm... My addendum is you just, whatever you choose, you have to be able to tolerate what happens next. So if you do some kind of self-abandonment then, yeah. you're going to have to tolerate the feeling of being with yourself and being like, why did you do that? Or if you say, mm-hmm. I don't miss you anymore, or I do not feel the same, then you have to deal with. They might have a feeling. They might be disappointed. Right. Yeah. That's okay. Right. But maybe that's something, I mean, maybe that's what's at stake here. Like, that, if that's what needs to be communicated, then yeah. it needs to be communicated. But if it's not that big of a deal. I think we're really, we're really helping some people out today. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Sagittarius Matters, how do I find a publisher? How did you all find yours? I know it's vague, but that's my question. Mm. From wanting to be published in Portland. At some point, I self-published enough that tiny punk publishers were like, we see you self-publishing and people reading your stuff. Can we publish some of that? Mm -hmm. And then I went on tour with that. And then I met a literary agent who helped me. You know, and also I got invited to anthologies and stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But a literary agent helped me figure out how to make a book proposal and send it to publishers. Yeah. But it was after doing it on my own for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah, me too. Actually. Um, I, my first publications were self published. Um, I, I co-edited as co-edited a zine with a friend. It wasn't exactly a per zine, but, um, but yeah, we self published this sort of like modeled after like punk planet and, um, Venus and bitch. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of published in, tiny literary journals and just kept writing and finding finding places that would be willing to publish my work met people and um I met my agent through a friend um who connected me and um and uh yeah Margaret and the mystery of the missing body took um a long time to find a publisher um and how long well um, I guess like all in all, like a year and a half, but like part of that time we had like pulled the manuscript, like we sent it out and then, um, got some rejections. And then I was sort of feeling like maybe it's not time, maybe it's not ready. And so we pulled it and then I did like a pretty significant revision. Um, and then we sent it out again. Um, and then it took, um, I don't know, like probably six or seven months um yeah but I I mean I think it found the right publisher for sure like I've been very happy with Feminist Press oh yeah they did a, such a beautiful job yeah but it's nice to it's nice to know how long it took because it's really hard to stay hearty during that time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of being like okay here you go world here's my tender you know here's my new thing I just that's like barely cooked it doesn't have a crust on it it's like very tender yeah I can't wait to see what you think of it and then it takes forever oh I know it's excruciating it really takes forever and then so many I've had to tell an agent I don't want to read the um 
the denials. What are you, I don't remember what you call them. The rejections. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't want to read the rejections. They can give me a rejection roundup of who said no, but like the little tiny things that people write just get stuck in my brain and make me never want to write again. Hi, listeners. If you have ever wanted to do a graphic memoir workshop with me, please run, don't walk over to my website, NicoleJGeorges.com and sign up now for my graphic memoir workshop that begins in April. It's a five to six week workshop, depending on how much time we want to spend together. And I will be going over the basics of comics, the basics of planning a long-term graphic memoir project. We'll dabble a little bit in fiction. I'll teach you things that you can use for a memoir project or for fiction, your choice. But basically, I'm talking about comics, talking about writing, I'm talking about vulnerability in writing, editing in comics, and so much more. I think these classes are really fun. The limit is 12 people, and you will be connected to a group of cartoonists who, if you so choose, you can stay connected to for the rest of your life. So go to NicoleJGeorges.com and sign up today. And if it's full, if you missed your spot, you can email me from my website and get on my graphic memoir mailing list where I will send you updates as soon as I post one again. All right. See you there. Kai Wilson, we just watched Home Alone 1. Okay. I haven't seen it for a very long time. Yeah, me either. I find myself now watching it and understanding that if I was one of the burglars, I would be dead. The things that happened to those men, yeah, I would have died. No, it, 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 so many of those things feel like they're just death, a death blow. <laughs> like you know that falling down icy stairs straight onto your back and head—that's yeah. death. Yeah, that's death. Uh, Getting hit in the face with an iron—that's iron, death. Yeah, a can of paint flying <laughs> through the air, flying through there and smacking you in the head again—death. A rope, a rope bridge being cut and you being flung into a brick wall and then landing on your back and head death dead i also identified more with the old man in home alone one than the child which is different than when i watched it and i was the same age as kevin so there's an old man who's his neighbor and whenever kevin sees him he screams and runs away and then for some reason the old man sits next to kevin in an empty church and just bears his soul. He's no, no boundaries. boundaries. Kevin, if that's your name, there's a lot of rumors going on around me and about me in the neighborhood. None of them are true. How does he know the neighborhood? Yeah. What is true is that I got into a fight with my, my son and we're estranged and it, I can't stop thinking about it. And I'm so sad, Kevin. Well, you know what you should do, mister? (laughs) Just talk to him. Oh, you think so? What if he what if he rejects me? Well, then at least you know, and you don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah. God, Kevin's brilliant. <laughs> so then Kevin goes brilliant home therapist. and he just so you remember the part in Home Alone where there's like a whole dance party happening, like there's a puppet theater that Kevin's made of a whole dance party. There's so many rigs, so much rigorole, so much string. So many, like, dummies that he had to haul up from the basement, the Michael Jordan thing, the Michael Jordan cardboard cutout. He cleans up all of that impeccably. He's like a master engineer, too, because he, like, sets up the Michael Jordan cutout on an electric train set so that it looks like it's moving. It's like, it's insane. This kid is a 
fucking genius therapist. He's a genius therapist. He's a gifted therapist. <laughs> and, He's an incredible engineer. Yeah. And he cleans house like oh, nothing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The next day, it's pristine. Yeah. So, after bringing out literally everything from the basement. Yeah. And so then he sets out his plans, which are definitely drawn by a child, you know, because they have like a couple letters backwards. So you can tell it was definitely drawn and written by a child, mm-hmm. not an adult prop designer. Mm-hmm. And and it's oh, ornaments is spelled wrong. So you can tell a little kid did it. And he just sets up so many booby traps with rigs and pulleys and like th- things hanging from the ceilings. How does he do that? I don't I mean, just must be hauling ladders has a hammer and nails, so much twine, um, tar. Tar. We don't see a lot of the setup. We see some of it, but it's, it's you know. And it's just really thoughtful. Like, okay, someone's going to, the same person who tries to come in the basement is going to get their shoes taken off by the tar, then step on the nail. Then they're going to go back downstairs, try to come in through the window. And that person who's shoeless with the nail foot is going to step on all the ornaments. Yeah. You really thought it through. So my version of this when I'm home alone is I put a hamper in front of the door mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so that I'll hear mm-hmm. uh, it. Or maybe someone will try to open my bedroom door while I'm sleeping and mm-hmm. feel some resistance and go, oh. Yeah. Or if I was going to think twice, I would put ornaments under the window, but I wouldn't leave the window open. And I would assume the first time I was wearing shoes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, I'm not really a, I'm going to give you some pointers for safety after so we moved record this but we moved on to home alone too yes and we haven't finished it so no spoilers but there is a homeless woman an unhoused a person experiencing unhousedness a person experiencing homelessness covered in pigeons have i already taken the first steps to this lifestyle mm-hmm. i haven't not taken the first steps of this lifestyle i have started to cultivate the birds yeah she, uh, Kevin screams in her face when he encounters her in the park. Which is very scary. Because she's a woman. Because she's a woman. She's an older, you know. She's, she's a little. Ancient. She's an ancient woman. She's a woman in her 40s. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh. <laughs> and she has kind of ruddy cheeks. Yeah, She looks so much like the villain in, villainous woman in, um. Pete's dragon, like kind of like tat, you know, the tattered wear and a hat. Oh, I haven't seen that for too for a long okay, too long. Well, but yeah, that's next. So then the woman, yeah, Kevin screams. She helps him get his shoe out of a rock. He runs fifty feet away and then goes, "Hey, sorry I screamed in your face. I thought you were scary, but now I don't. <laughs> I thought you were scary because you were covered in birds, but now I see." You must be pretty nice. They must like you. And that's why they're covering your whole body. My name's Kevin McAllister. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'd love a hot chocolate. Want to join me? It's on me. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, yes. Because she's in her 40s. Then she takes him to like the ceiling or uh, the attic of a place that has symphonic music playing. Pigeons are with her, as always. Yeah. And then she just, she just bears her soul. Again, yeah, bears her soul. I was in love once, and then I got rejected. She said, I didn't always used to be like this. I didn't used to be like this. I he, he was loved once by a man who betrayed me, and now I can't, don't think I can ever love again. Which doesn't really, like, account for everything. all the other dominoes that must have fallen yeah. in her life. Yeah. And Kevin's like, you should love again. Once I had rollerblades. Yeah. And I... 
I didn't wear them because they were too nice. And then you know what happened? And she's like, what? On the edge of her seat. I outgrew them. <laughs> Just like your heart. If you don't use it for a while, you may find you've outgrown <laughs> Like you just. I fell asleep during. It was so long. It was like a forty-minute monologue. So so long about the rollerblades. I just can't imagine any of these adults and this woman obviously going through a lot. He's like, my life's a lot like yours. Oh. My family doesn't listen to me, and when they do, I'm the youngest. And when they do listen to me, I get sent to my room, kind of like you. And then she does somehow make a bridge between the nonsense that he's spewing and Mm -hmm. then her very dire situation Mm -hmm. of. Whatever whatever thing was the tipping point to make her a pigeon lady, mm-hmm. which was a heartbreak. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she's telling this 10-year-old she just met on the streets. And then mm-hmm. he gives her that great advice to just love again. What does she have to lose? Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of like, Kevin, I think she's got, she's got a lot to lose. Yeah. We'll definitely go gay. I mean, if we could insert some, you know. Yeah, go ahead. But I just want to say, what did you Google right after we watched the scene with the pigeon lady? Well, you, I think you'd made a reference to like him having these bonding weird, or like his like therapy moments with these with the old people who are old, the ca- <laughs> old ye olden cast cast members um, in the plot line. And I said, oh, that she's not she's younger than me. I think she's <laughs> 43 or 44. So then we Googled her age. You did the math during this movie. During the and she is younger than you in this movie. She is. <laughs> she's 46 yeah <laughs> i just want to say no spoilers but you remember like kevin's super rich like his whole family is like so fucking rich his dad just looks like a tennis commercial and they have like 400 kids yeah. and then family members all have 400 kids because who cares about climate change and like there's so much money in the fucking biggest house on the block let's take all these kids to paris let's take all these kids to miami and then i think in the end of this movie Kevin, who's been walking around with, like, thousands of dollars in his little fanny pack, I think that he gives the unhoused woman a Christmas ornament. Oh. And that's the heartfelt... uh, No spoiler, sorry. But that's, like, the heartfelt end of... for me. The heartfelt end of the movie. It's not that he gives her shelter, food... Money. Just money. Money. Resources. He doesn't get her a job at the toy store where he's best friends with the owner. He gives her a christmas ornament and it's like we'll be friends forever and she's like god bless you she thought i think the next day or something that was a free under it was like sub 10 and she froze right now we're watching home alone 2 and joe pesci flew into the air and landed on a car i'd be dead daniel whatever his name is got hit in the face with multiple bricks that were thrown off the top of a building I'd be dead. And now I think he's about to fall through the floor. Also dead. There he goes. Oh, right on the concrete. Dead. Just just fell like... Face first onto concrete. 14 feet onto concrete. Oh my God. Ugh. Disgusting. Staple gun to the face. Dead. Oh, tons of tools right on Joe Pesci's head. Oh, dead. Sound effects in this movie. He's going to kill one of these men, and then he's going to have to face some real-life consequences. You know? Yeah, that's what should happen in Home Three. I think he should have gone to juvie for attempted murder. Mm-hmm. He is a sinister. He is sinister, too. 
No one's asking why these men are in the situation where they need to go to these great lengths to try and get money. Yeah, come on. Can I just say that this is like a classic American, like, uh, objects over human beings. Like, like Kevin would rather murder these men for trying to steal the possessions in his home. He would, like in Home Alone 1, mm-hmm. he would rather possibly murder them mm-hmm. for attempting to steal his quote-unquote property or invade his quote-unquote property than, than not. He would go to these great lengths just to protect property mm-hmm. because these men don't, aren't worth as much as the people in Kevin's life because they're poor. They have an alternative means of making a living. <laughs> 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 You're a real activist. <laughs> real advocate for <laughs> for Merv, Merv and <laughs> Joe Pesci, Joe, Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern, yeah. La- Larry and Merv or yeah. Merv and Manny, whatever their like names a, are. We just watched them, and I can't. I don't know their names. I'm just saying, like Kevin in his suburban mansion, sure. being like, "I'm gonna fucking give you a head injury and bash yeah. you in the face and oh yeah, crush your nuts." Well, he is a he's a psychopath. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Kevin is trying to set the men on fire. This is a children's movie. The men are climbing a rope and Kevin set the rope on fire and soaked it in kerosene. There they go. They're going up in flames. Oh, now they're falling. They're they're on fire and falling. They just fell like six stories. A million billion cans of paint just fell on top of them. It's like paint thinner. That's like they. I mean, they're gonna at least they're gonna they're gonna get cancer from all that toxic exposure if they don't die from all that. Also, Kevin long, blew long up Joe Pesci. His head. Yeah. Joe Pesci's head was on fire. Kevin, give me a break. You don't even live in New York. Mm-hmm. All right, Kaya Wilson. Oh, boy. We just finished it. Yeah. So as promised at the end, his spoiled, rotten family mm. are in a warm, two-story deluxe suite at mm-hmm. the Plaza Hotel. Mm-hmm. Kevin runs away to go see his friend in old-timey garb covered in pigeon shit. Oh, yeah. He gives her a Christmas ornament. <laughs> exactly what she needed the most. <laughs> it, How do you know? And he just looks so clean and so rich. As he's like, this way, we'll be friends forever. And then she just gives him a blank stare and says, thanks, Kevin. And then his room service bill comes in. So he has to go back to his two-story hotel room. Yeah, She's also in great spirits after sleeping in the snow. Yeah. She slept outside. Mm-hmm. It snowed that night. Mm-hmm. Nobody had like a... Kevin didn't wake up with like a pang of like, oh shit. Mm-hmm. It got so she, cold. Yeah. I wonder if she made it through the night. I hope she's okay. Instead, he was like, I'm going to give her a Christmas ornament. Yeah. That would mean so much. Why didn't he bring her back to the hotel room if they're best friends? I know. If they're friends forever, why not even, like, get her to a place in the lobby? 
Like he's already blackmailing Tim Curry, the homose- yeah. known homosexual in the yeah. movie. He's already blackmailing Tim Curry. Why doesn't he say, if you really don't want my dad to sue, you'll let my friends sit in the lobby and drink hot chocolate. It's Christmas after all. I like the rewrite. Thanks. That you're making. Yeah. Well, why does it have to be exactly the same as the first movie where... Yeah, it's, yeah exactly the same. Somebody around your age... Wearing boots. Right. <laughs> scares him to death just by existing. Yeah. yeah. Just, the boots is <laughs> Just by having an old face. Yeah. Ooh. Ah! No, big scream. <laughs> what, I mean, that, that's what made the movie. Big scream. Huge scream anytime he sees someone with an old face. Yeah. No! Terrifying. The humanity of Marvin, Harry, was never... They deserve justice. Oh, God. Ah, they really were put through it. They were put through a little much, considering they're just burglars. They're not like Jeffrey Epstein. (laughs) They're just cat burglars. Yeah. He's like, hey, cat burglar, I'm going to set your head on fire and then fill a toilet bowl with flammable liquid so when you stick your burning head in it, you blow up. I mean, the sadistic, I mean, the thoughtfulness. (laughs) Yeah imagination of this this child the the kind of gruesome detail of torture this is like the golden state killer probably something else putting this is like the golden state killer stacking dinner plates on top of somebody in their sleep before he or in their bed and telling them not to move this is the same that's kevin grown up <laughs> i don't know what you're talking about it's so <laughs> creepy what you just said okay <laughs> all right that's all we'll give this movie how many thumbs up i mean None? One? I I feel, you know, set for life having watched both movies for the second time in my lifespan (laughs) as an adult. Because I didn't come out. I was 17 when the first one came out. So I would never watch number two again. I'd never watch either of them again. But I'll go for three. No. I'm kidding. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by... Panyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.